Well, today we begin our topical sermon series on sexual issues. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at all sorts of issues surrounding sex. We're going to think of sex out of marriage, sex in marriage, IVF, contraception, abortion, human cloning. Now, let me warn you. At times, the discussion that we're going to have is going to be quite frank. At times, Jeff and I, we're going to say things that may, well, they might just leave you feeling a little bit uncomfortable, a little uneasy. Things that might just make the hairs on the back of your neck stand on end. Maybe things that'll make the blood rush to your face. We might say things that'll stir up in you a whole array of emotions, from guilt and shame to joy and liberation. You might be shocked at what you hear over the next few weeks, maybe even a little disturbed. So then the question has to be asked, why? Why? Why on earth would we choose to do a sermon series like this? I mean, if it's going to make people have all these feelings and make people feel uncomfortable, why on earth would we deliberately choose to make you all endure it? Well, the simple answer is this. It's because the world's ways are not God's ways. The world's ways are not God's ways, and that is especially true when it comes to issues surrounding sex. And so you know what? Well... Unless we're brave and unless we go ahead and we tackle head-on issues like sex, then you know what? Sooner or later, we Christians, we're going to start looking a lot like the world looks. We're going to start acting in the way that is appropriate for the world. We're going to stop living the way that God wants us to live. Why are we doing this series? Because the world's ways are not God's ways. So, okay, everybody, sit back, hold on tight. Okay, you ready for this? Take a deep breath and trust. Trust that though, through, though the next few weeks might leave you feeling a little uncomfortable, trust that they'll also be very good for your souls. Let's pray. Father, as we do set off on this endeavour now to explore sexual issues, we pray that you would guide us. We pray that you would reveal to us your ways and we pray that you would help us to live according to them in jesus name we pray amen well today in this first part of our series on sexual issues we're going to be thinking about the idea of sex outside of marriage and when it comes to ideas surrounding sex outside of marriage it's abundantly clear that the ways of the world are vastly different from god's ways especially here in the west let's face it we currently live in generation sex. We live in a society that is saturated with sex. It's everywhere. It's on our tellies, it's on our computers, it's in our news agents, um, it's on the billboards that we pass in the street, uh, it's in our school classroom, it's, it's in advertising. Our society is saturated with sex. Not that that's always been the case. No, it was the sexual revolution of the 1960s that saw huge changes in our society's attitudes towards sex. Where once uh, topics that were considered, uh, once considered taboos, well, they're now considered to be the norm. In the 1960s, premarital sex, for example, it, it was considered to be wrong by the vast majority of people. But today, well, it's pretty much par for the course. In, in 2002... Uh, the National Secondary Students and Sexual Health Survey found that one in four, one in four, a quarter of Year 10 students here in Australia were no longer virgins. 
The same study found that one in two year 12 students, one half of year 12 students were no longer virgins. Where in the 1960s, only 3% of Australians lived together before they got married. Now that figure is 75%. You see, society's attitudes have changed vastly when it comes to sex. Society's attitude towards homosexuality, the attitude to pornography, our society's attitude to what is a normal expectation on a date. Yes, even our society's attitude to group sex has changed. And so whilst we have certain footballers that are publicly chastised in the media for participating in group sex, we have that same media showing late night television commercials um, offering all sorts of sexual encounters, including group sex, without the outcry. Extramarital affairs, well, they have become the stuff of prime time entertainment. Try and think of a long-term faithful married couple in any recent television soap opera. You'll have a hard time doing it. Yeah, we live in generation sex, a sex-saturated society, a society where pretty much anything is up for grabs. And yet what we need to realise as this, is that this attitude that the world has towards sex is vastly different to the attitude that God has towards sex. Not that God is anti-sex, no way. In fact, the opposite. According to God, sex is very good. Despite what some Christians might have you believe, God is all for sex. No, sex is not naughty. It's not distasteful, it's not something that's meant to be endured for the sake of having children, no. According to God, sex is very good. In Genesis chapter 2, we read this of the first sexual experience. We read, The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So now note here, in the, the second chapter of the Bible, we've already got Adam and Eve having sex. When is the fall? When is the fall? It's not till chapter 3, is it? So to think that sex is somehow sinful, it's wrong. No, the fact is we have been created as sexual beings. So that means that if you find yourself experiencing sexual feelings, no need to get embarrassed or surprised about it, no need to feel guilt or shame about it. No, you have been created as a sexual being and sex is very good. We see it all through the scriptures. Perhaps nowhere as clearly as in the Song of Songs, which we had read for us a little earlier on, you know, the Song of Songs where we have, we've got the man there and the, and the woman describing their, their sexual longings for one another. You read the Song of Songs and it's hot stuff. But in it, we see just how positive the Bible and God is towards sex. Now, God is not anti-sex. Rather, according to God, sex is very good and it's to be enjoyed. But that's not to say that sex can't be misused because it can. The problem comes when Satan, he distorts our sexual drive. 
when we use sex in a way that it was never meant to be used. In the Bible, God lists a number of contexts where sex is inappropriate. Adultery, incest, homosexual acts, bestiality, all of these, they're listed as misuses of sex. But more generally, the Bible, it condemns any sex outside of marriage. The term that it uses, the old term, was fornication, a term that uh, the more modern NIV Bibles have translated as sexual immorality. In, in other words, sex is meant for, and it's only meant for, the context of marriage. Lifelong, monogamous marriage. And any sex outside of marriage is a misuse of sex. But why? Why? Why is it? I mean, if sex is so good, then why would God put this kind of restriction on sex? You know, is he just some big party pooper in the sky? He likes to see sexually repressed people. Maybe we've got a God who just sets up arbitrary rules to test us, you know, to see if we can do it or not. Why? Why would God restrict sex to the context of marriage? Why do you think? Well, I think that we better understand the purpose of these restrictions. When we come to understand God's purposes for sex, and in the Bible we learn that there are at least two very important purposes for sex. Number one, making children. And number two, cementing a relationship. Firstly, let's think about making children. Now, I'm hoping that I'm not surprising anyone here this morning when I tell you that... Uh, no, it's not the stork that delivers babies. The babies come from sexual intercourse. Remember what God told Adam way back in the beginning. He said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, God said to Adam, go have sex. One of the purposes of sex is making children. And the second is cementing a relationship. Remember how in the creation account of Genesis, after God created everything, he looked around and he saw that everything was very good. Well, everything but one thing. You remember what was not very good? It was not good that the man was alone. So God, he did something about it. He made a partner for Adam, a wife, someone with whom he could now relate. And integral to this relationship was sex. They became one flesh. And that first sexual relationship, well, it then became the pattern for all other sexual relationships that would follow. Look again at this verse from Genesis chapter 2, where we read, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. One flesh. Now, this idea of one flesh, it is profound. Profound. It's like the, the deepest of all personal intimacy and self-giving. See, if it's working properly, what sex does is that it bonds you to another person. It bonds you to them. It makes you one flesh with them. Now, how this works, we've got no idea. We don't know. But this bonding, it's mental, it's spiritual, it's physical, and it is strong and it is profound. The two become one flesh. So you see, sex is a bit like the superglue of a relationship. It cements two people together. 
And that's a really good thing. It's a really good thing. That's why the Bible tells us to have lots of sex in marriage. Because it works. Because it builds and it cements a relationship. And because it helps repair it when it's damaged. Not that sex will ever make a perfect a marriage perfect, no. But it does work. So what are the two purposes of sex here? They are making children and cementing a relationship. And when you think of it like this, when you think of it in these terms, you can see that these two functions make sex very, very powerful. Because with sex you can create life. And with sex, two people become one flesh. It's very powerful. And it's when we understand this that it makes perfect sense why God would restrict the proper use of sex to marriage. In their book um, called uh, Pure Sex, uh, Tony Payne, which I highly recommend, by the way, Tony Payne and Philip Jensen put it really well when they say this. They say, The goodness and rightness of this framework can be seen by a consideration of the alternatives. To have children outside the stability of a permanent monogamous relationship is cruel to the child, as well as to the mother, who usually bears the burden of raising and supporting the child in the absence of a permanent father. And to bond ourselves to someone sexually outside the permanency of a marriage relationship is also damaging for both parties. It creates wounds that others can't see, but which touch the core of our personalities. When the breakup occurs, we are torn apart, and with each successive episode, we become less capable of giving ourselves to another and enjoying the free and intimate union with another person that sex was designed to facilitate. So can you see? Sex, sex is a little bit like fire isn't it? It's a bit like fire. Because in the right context, it's very good. You know, fire can keep you warm on a cold night. Fire can give you light in the dark. It can cook your food. Fire, in the right context, a very, very good thing. But in the wrong context, well, it can be very dangerous. You know, if I, if I stand over an open fire and, and pour petrol into it, I'm going to get burned, aren't I? Now, you see, it's the same as sex. In the right context, it's very, very good, but in the wrong context, it can actually hurt me and it can hurt the people around me too. So what have we learned so far? Well, we've learned that God has created sex and in his opinion, it is very good. We've learned that God has designed sex for the context of a man and a woman in a permanent monogamous relationship. We've learnt that according to God, all other sex is a misuse of sex. And we've learnt that when we consider the purposes of sex, well, it makes perfect sense that the only right context for sex is within marriage. And so, Christians, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's keep sex in the context of marriage, okay? Let's keep it in its right context. Let's not misuse sex. Let's avoid sex out of marriage. Let's not do it the world's way. Let's do it God's way. But that said, let's face it. 
Sometimes that's hard to do. After all, God has given us sex drives and they can be very strong. After all, our sex drives have been somewhat distorted. And on top of that, we live in a sex-crazed society. And so it's one thing, thing for us as Christians to know that it's wrong to have out, a sex outside of marriage. But often, sometimes at least, it's another thing when temptation is all around us. And so what is a Christian to do? Well, what I want to do now is I want to spend just a little bit of time thinking through 10 practical tips that I hope will help you and me avoid sex out of marriage. Now, there's actually a lot more than just 10 tips that could be given here. And I really wish that I had about three hours to talk about this particular issue. But I don't, so I've tried to whittle it down somewhat. So let's begin. Firstly, tip one. Tip one. Acknowledge that you could have sex outside of marriage. Don't ever believe, will you, that it could never happen to you. Whether you're married or you're single, whether you're young, whether you're old, don't ever think that it couldn't happen to you. You see, no one ever sits down and plans to have an affair. What happens? People generally find themselves having an affair. And unless you realise that you're vulnerable like the rest of us, then you have set yourself up for a fall. Whether you're a housewife, or a schoolboy, or an office worker, or a pastor, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter, whoever you are, acknowledge that it could happen to you. Tip number two. Number two. You need to determine if you're in immediate danger. You need to determine if you are in immediate danger. Now, here's how we'll do it. All right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you a question and I'll give you three seconds to think of the answer just in your own mind. Okay, here we go, three seconds. If you were to have an affair with someone, who would it be with? Okay, there we go. Did you come up with someone? Name? Face? If so, then what I want to say to you is that you're in immediate danger. You're in immediate danger. This is your danger person. And from this point on, you're going to have to relate differently to, to this particular person. From now on, you're going to have to do things like avoiding ever being alone with that particular person again. In addition, you're going to have to need to decide to never, ever share your feelings of attraction with that particular person, either verbally or non-verbally. If you're married, then I suggest that when you're around that other particular person, that you talk about your spouse with them. Go on. Talk about them in very positive terms. If the other person is married, then talk about their spouse with them in very positive terms. But never ever see that particular danger person as your confidant, will you? Never see them as your emotional support. If temptation is strong, then maybe you're going to have to make some massive life changes, like changing your job if they're at work, like changing your church if they're here, 
you'll definitely need to tell someone who will be able to keep you accountable. Why? Because sexual tension, you see, it thrives on secrecy. Blow it out of the water. Tell someone. You know, tell me, tell Jeff, tell an elder of this church, men. Women, tell Carmelina, tell Beth when she gets back. Tell, tell a strong female Christian friend that you know. Don't worry, you will not shock us. But what you might do is you might just be putting into action a plan to defuse a very dangerous situation. Tip three, single people. Single people, I want you to realise that you who are virgins have something that is a, a very wonderful, wonderful thing. Don't listen to our society any longer. Don't listen to them. They are wrong, wrong. 35 years this society told me that I was losing out. 34 years they told Beth that she was losing out. It's not true. Can I tell you how pleased we are now to have waited? Can I tell you of the liberation that comes with getting married to someone who has no baggage, to someone who has no experience, where there are no comparisons being made, where there are no standards to be lived up to. She thinks I'm wonderful. <laughs> we bring, you see, to our marriage bed no memories, no guilt, no shame. Believe me when I say that that long wait was painful, but worth it. And so whilst society spent a lot of time telling us that we had lost out, we feel that our, it is our society that has lost out. No, single people, you're right, I can't promise that you'll ever get married. No, I can't. But I can promise that abstinence is the better way. Why? Because it is God's way. Know that your virginity is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And if you do get married, well, know that you can make up for lost time too. Tip number four, married people. Married people, I want to say to you, work hard at your marriages, won't you? You know, despite what you feel when you see that pretty little thing in a skirt at work, the grass is not greener on the other side. No, the grass is always greener where? Greener where it is watered. Work hard at your marriage. Work hard at intimacy, at friendship, at forgiveness, You'll find that there's all sorts of things that'll scream out for your attention, your work, your ministry, your kids. If you allow it, these other things, they will come and they will suck the life right out of your marriage to a point that, well, it shouldn't be surprising that you're tempted to go off and find satisfaction somewhere else. Don't let them. Put your marriage above all these things and find satisfaction there. Tip number five, have wide boundaries. Have wide boundaries. Now, what I mean is this. If you believe that it is wrong to have sex with some, someone outside of marriage, but your only boundary is that mental decision not to have sex with someone outside of marriage, then you've you're in real danger of doing that very thing. Why? Well, because like me, you're a sinner. And as sinners, what do we do? Well, we, we break our own boundaries all the time. We, 
We break our own rules all the time. So what we have to do, I reckon, is make our boundaries wide. We need some kind of buffer zone. Let me give you an example. An example. Uh, this church, um, they have essentially enforced upon me certain boundaries and I think it's a very wise thing to do. You see, as a pastor of this church, I'm not allowed to go and visit it with any uh, woman under the age of 60 in a private place. I'm not allowed to. That's the boundary that I have been given, you see. It's a, a wide boundary. Not, not that it would ever be... It's not a sinful thing for me to go and visit with a woman in this way. No. But you see, by putting this boundary in place, by putting this rule in place, it makes it a lot harder for me to do something stupid. Do you see how broad boundaries can be helpful? Now, don't be stupid when you come up with your boundaries. I don't think you ever need to decide... <clears throat> I don't think you'd ever need to decide that you'll, you'll never speak to someone of the opposite sex again. That's just plain stupid. But maybe you'll decide something like, like this. Maybe if you have a, a friendship with somebody of the opposite sex, maybe you'll decide that you will always have a better friendship with the spouse of that person than with that person themselves. There you go. I think that would be a very sensible boundary to put in place. Tip number six. Number six, watch your thought life. Watch your thought life. I've, I've heard it said that every affair begins with that moment of maybe. So friend, as soon as you find yourself thinking maybe, then let the warning bells ring. It's time to pull out. Watch your fantasies. Watch your thought life. If pornography is a problem for you, then know that you are already on that path of maybe careful tip number seven number seven remember that sex out of marriage is never the solution to loneliness whether you are married or you are single sex is not the solution to loneliness Marilyn Monroe the ultimate sex symbol of the 60s she was the woman who could have in fact did have any man that she desired and yet in 1962, Marilyn Monroe killed herself, purposefully overdosed on sleeping tablets. Beside, beside her dead body was the note that the people found, and on it, Marilyn had written these words. She wrote, All I ever wanted was to be loved. All I ever wanted was to be loved. The words of a so-called sex goddess. Don't ever believe that sex out of marriage will be the solution to your loneliness. It won't. Tip number eight. Think about the consequences that your sexual sin will have on other people. Don't ever fall into the trap of thinking that sexual sin is a private sin because that's never the case. No, when you sin sexually, well, it's like an earthquake and there's always devastating shock waves that permeate out from you. If you're thinking of having an affair, stop. Stop now. Stop. Think beyond those few moments of gratification. If you're married, think about your spouse. What sort of effect would an affair have on your spouse? If you're single, think about your possible future spouse. How will it affect them? Think about your kids, your children. Think about the cost 
that an affair would have on your children. Think about the child that you might just conceive through this affair. Think about the effect that it will have on your ministry. Think of the way that you'll be dragging the name of Jesus through the mud. Think of having to explain your affair to your parents. Think of your extended family. And then, of course, think about all the damage that will be done to the relationships in the life of the other person involved. Their spouse, their kids, their family. Don't be deceived, will you? Sexual sin devastates. So stop and think of these consequences to other people. Tip number nine. Number nine, think about the consequences that sex outside of marriage will have on yourself. Remember, sex, it's like relationship cement, isn't it? Designed to bond two people together forever. Well, you know what happens when you break up with someone after having sex with them? It's like the ripping apart of one flesh. It's the tearing of one flesh. That doesn't happen without pain. That's why it's always easier to break up with someone when, when we've never had sex with them. That's why divorce is always so painful. There is this ripping of one flesh. A sexual sin has a more damaging effect on us than any other sin. So the Apostle Paul wrote, he wrote, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. See, our, our self-identity, our self-worth, they are... They're affected by sex. When we sin sexually, what we're doing is we're harming the very core of our being. So before you sin sexually, think about the consequences to yourself. And finally, tip number 10. I want you to remember that ultimately sexual immorality is rebellion against God. See, what it does is it shows more than just a lack of wisdom. It shows a rebellious, sinful nature. It is to worship the creation over the creator. And it will therefore incur the wrath of God. Don't be deceived. The sexually immoral have no part in the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul wrote this. He wrote, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You see, at the end of the day, I could go on and on, giving you reason after reason why you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage, but at the end of the day, Christians, God has commanded us not to. And that ought to be enough. Remember, sexual immorality is ultimately a rebellion against God. And so the sexually immoral have no part in the kingdom of God. Remember that. So there you go. I hope that's helpful. Ten tips to avoiding sex outside of marriage. But this morning, I don't want to finish there. I don't want to finish there. What I want to do this morning is finish with a word to those of us who have fallen sexually to those of us who have had sex outside of marriage and with a group this size 
there's got to be some. Maybe it was before you were a Christian. Maybe it was even while you've been a Christian. What I want to do now is show you a wonderful, wonderful verse that comes from the Bible. In fact, it's one of my favourites. It's uh, actually a verse that comes directly after the ones we just looked at. Immediately after, the Apostle Paul says that sexually immoral people have no part in the kingdom of God. This is what he says. He says, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, hear those words, and that is what some of you were. The church there in Corinth that contained ex-adulterers, ex-prostitutes, ex-thieves, ex-drunkards, ex-homosexual offenders, ex-slanderers, ex-swindlers, pretty much ex-anything and everything that you can think of. And I am so pleased. I am so pleased. Why? Because it gives us such great hope, doesn't it? For them, all of this was a part of their past, past history. And look to at that wonderful word there, but, but, but you were washed. In fact, the original Greek had three buts there. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, in the gospel comes forgiveness. In the gospel comes a fresh start, a new start with God. And so when Satan points his finger at us and accuses us of all sorts of things, we've got no need to listen to him. We've got no need to lose our confidence. No. Why? Because Jesus has paid the price that is infinitely bigger than any sin that you or I have ever committed. So if you're here this morning and you have fallen sexually, stop now. Stop and consider again what it is that Christ has done for you then ask God for forgiveness and then stop sinning in that way. If you keep sinning sexually, then seek professional Christian counselling, won't you? Find out why, why it is that you keep sinning in this way. But whether you are a person who has fallen sexually or not, know that as Christians we now have God himself living in us. That he lives in us and he's now there to help us, to help us change and to motivate us and to enable us to turn away from the past and begin a new life. And while that change might not be an easy one, while it might take time and effort on our part, well, we can rejoice that with God's help, it is truly possible for us to be the sort of people that he wants us to be. So friends, let's pray now and ask that that would be the case for us. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed thank you for creating us and creating us as sexual beings. We thank you for the good gift that sex is and we pray that we would never misuse it but always keep it within the context of marriage. We pray for those of us who have fallen sexually that you would forgive us and restore us and give us confidence in the gospel of Christ 
We pray for those of us who have not fallen in this way, that we would continue to live according to your ways, knowing that your ways are the best ways. But no matter who we are, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would change us and motivate us and enable us to now live lives of sexual purity. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.